Before we uh, get started, I want to try um, something a little different. Let me ask you a question. If you went to a doctor and they did some tests, told you that you had an incurable disease, you had six months to live, what would you do? I mean, if you had six months to live, what would you do? What would become important to you at that point? Would you, uh, I don't know, work more hours at the office? Watch a little more TV? Would you uh, empty your retirement account, take that cruise you always wanted to take, or buy all those things that you've always wanted? Would you stay in your marriage? Or would you uh, get out and try to find that, that relationship you've always wanted? I uh, know a man who has an incurable disease, and as the disease progressed, uh, he realized he had a very limited time. What he has done is he left his wife and children. He's living with another woman. And he told me, he said, I don't have time to play games anymore. I can't pretend anymore. I've got to find what I want in life. I can't live any longer for anybody else's expectations because there is no future. I've only got now. Well, in a sense, he's right. He, it is time for him to decide what's important to him. So again, let me ask you, what would you do if you only had six months to live? In fact, in your bulletins, there is a, uh, a page that's for writing notes. Get that out or get another piece of paper out. Take a pen or a pencil. And, and for me, write the five things you think you would do if you only had six months. If you don't have a pen or a pencil, list them on your fingers. <laughs> Try to remember them, though, because we're going to talk about them a little later. I'll give you a, about a minute. This is only for you to see. You don't have to turn these in at the end. Don't let the person next to you peek. And I know this is a little artificial, that uh, unless you were in that situation, you can't really know. But, but let's try this. The five things that you would do or that, or that would become most important to you if you had six months to live. I'll give you about a minute or so. Okay, if you're not finished, you can cheat and take the next uh, couple of minutes. But turn with me, if you've got a Bible, to 1 Peter 4, 7. As you might have guessed, this, uh, Peter's going to talk some about uh, what's important when there isn't much time left. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. Peter starts out by saying, The end of all things is near. Now, what Peter is saying is that our Lord's return could happen at any time. So there isn't much time. Now, a lot of people say, well, didn't Peter write this about 2,000 years ago? What's going on here? Doesn't this just show Peter didn't know what he's talking about? No, not at all. You see, uh, the, the, the writers of our New Testament knew that uh, nobody really knew the exact time of Jesus' return. Uh, Jesus had told them that it wasn't for us to know. But they were right in expecting it at any moment, at any time. It could happen. Cardinal uh, John Henry Newman had a neat way of explaining this. He said, history was moving toward the end, toward eternity, all the way up to Jesus' first coming. To, to the cross. And the cross is the pivotal event of history, literally the turning point of history. You see, on the cross, 
God accomplished all that needed to be fulfilled. And so history, right up to that point, was moving toward the end. But at the cross, history took a left turn and is running on the edge of eternity. Right on, right on, uh, on the precipice. So we live on the edge of eternity. All it will take is a quick right turn and it will all be over. It will all end. You see, every generation from, from Jesus' first coming on has lived on the edge of eternity. We, in fact, our Lord wanted us to look at it this way. We are in the end times. Now, we know from other scripture that, that, that God is being patient so that people can be saved. It's not His will that any be lost. He's bringing the full number to Himself. And there will come a point, a, a time, any time now, where God says, it is time. And it will all end. But all of us are right in thinking that we are right on the edge. It could happen any time now. We live in the last days. It could be any day now. Let me add two thoughts to this as well. And when you look at it, rather than saying, well, man, it's been 2,000 years almost. It's never going to happen. Instead, we should realize that we are nearly 2,000 years closer to the event than Peter was. And if it was true for him that it could happen at any time, how much more is it true for us with all that's happened since then? And secondly, realize that it could be any moment for us individually. A heart attack, a car accident, choking on a piece of food. Even if it didn't end the whole game, for each of us individually, it could be any time. Life is fragile. And the older we get, the more we realize how short life is. And we're called to live in that reality. And what Peter does after making that opening statement is he goes on, tells us what we should focus on in light of this. You know, I've been around quite a few people who were dying. And what inevitably happens, invariably happens, is that their focus in life narrows. What's in their heart comes out. That it becomes exposed because what, what's important to them really does become their focus. Life, what's truly important in life, becomes obviously important. Well, let's look at what Peter tells us is most important, what, we, what our focus is to be. Peter says, Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled. The first word, term, clear-minded, literally means be sane. Don't be insane. Don't be crazy. Now, the, uh, what's Peter talking about? The, the primary characteristics of sanity are, are, one, a sense of proportion, and two, a connection with reality. See, uh, somebody who is insane has lost a sense of proportion, lost this, the, the sense being able to tell what is truly important what isn't important. A person who is insane may look at something that is in fact trivial as absolutely important. All of their energy, all of their focus absorbed with that thing. While things that are truly important are ignored, completely overlooked. 
Sanity is contact with reality. Being able to tell the difference between the illusions, the imagined, and the real. The other day I was watching one of those news shows and they had a report of a little boy who had imagined that there was someone trying to kidnap him. It wasn't true. By the times he said he saw something, they knew there was nobody there. But he was absolutely terrified. The fact that it wasn't real didn't lessen his fear, his terror, his trauma a bit. Because for that poor little boy, the, the imagined felt absolutely real. So for us to remain sane is to keep a clear sense of proportion, what's important and, and what can be ignored. And to keep a close contact with reality, what's illusion, what's imaginary, and what's real. See, and this applies to our lives, what our lives are about, the purpose for our life, what our energies should be applied to. We end up spending so much time on things that aren't important, so much energy on things that don't matter while we ignore terribly important issues. We invest ourselves into things that, that, that aren't true, that aren't real, that are mere illusions that the world offers us as the key to happiness and joy. And it's a lie. It's an illusion. It's imaginary. And so what Peter is saying is be sane. Look at things as they really are. And we're told to be self-controlled, literally sober, alert, serious. Now, he's not talking about serious in the sense of being somber and sour-faced and never having any uh, joy or laughter in your life. Now, what he's talking about is being disciplined and bringing our lives into line with what's important, with what's real. Doing the right thing. Well, what is important? Now, Peter's glad you asked. Because that's what he goes on to tell us in the next couple of verses. He tells us what's important. And I think his first point is startling. Peter says, be sane and be sober for prayer. Now, we're going to go a little bit deeper here, so please uh, follow me carefully. Peter is saying that the most important, the most fundamental thing in our life is our prayer life. Now, I don't think he is just talking about having a quiet time every day, as extremely valuable as that is. And I don't think he's just talking about not falling asleep when you're going down your list of people and things to pray for. And again, don't think that I'm disparaging that in any way. But what I think he's talking about here is our inner life. See, we all have an inner life, a secret life, if you will. Our own thoughts that no one else can see. Our own desires and ambitions and, and, and longings that are in the, the core of our hearts. What Peter is suggesting here is that that inner life, that, 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 that inner room of our heart, is the most important thing in your life. Because everything flows out of that. A life of hypocrisy or a life that's genuine and profound. What flows out of that is the integrity of our lives. And in that inner room, in that core, are the God's presence 
will be there. Or something else, some other ambition, some other desire, some other secret life focused on something else. And that it is critically important to realize how important that inner life is. And, and, and to escape these other things that, that, that would fill that. Even good things like family or, or desire to be successful. Often not so good things. Sexual lust or abuse or addiction to things. These kinds of things. That to, to escape those things that, 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 that crowd in and dominate that inner room in our hearts. And instead establish God there. A connection with Him, hearing His voice, knowing His presence there. Either He will be there, as is truly important, as we were created for, or something else will be there that can never satisfy. That, that's merely an illusion and a lie. And getting your inner life straight is the most important thing in your life. It is from that inner connection with God, when He is at the core of your being, that everything else flows, that life flows. As we walk with Him, uh, just laying before Him our, our needs, our desires, our feelings, bringing to Him our concern for other people, uh, laying before Him our, our sins, our failures, our, our lusts, our frustrations, walking with Him. Uh, talking with Him, just as we live our everyday lives. It's from this that everything flows. And take a look at what flows. That's what Peter goes on to tell us. The next thing is it always works this way. When we are connected with God at the inner core of our being, it doesn't just stay there. It doesn't, we don't kind of indulge in the life of a hermit focused on ourselves. It always turns outward. Always begins to look at others. Verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. The very first thing that flows out of that inner life with God is a deep love for each other. The word deep there means aggressive, strenuous. It's, it's a word used of a horse that's stretching out, that's really running. It, it, it's intense. These are, this is the kind of love that he is describing. It's an active, pursuing love, not merely a, a passive, tolerant love. It's a love that really strains to understand and to think through what another person's needs are. It's a love that's not focused on, 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 on oneself, but, but on what the other person's, what will really help them, what will really be in their benefit. I think that's to some degree what, what Peter's talking about when he says love covers a multitude of sins. And when someone sins against us, or you know, we are hurt by them, our relationship becomes strained, what usually happens is we develop an overwhelming desire for them to face how they've hurt us or, or disappointed us. We want to be heard and understood because we want to be vindicated. We want them to admit that they were wrong, or at least more wrong. That we are innocent, or at least more innocent. We want that sin exposed. We want to parade it around. In fact, we complain about it to other people. We tell them all about it. How this person has sinned against us. 
And then we withhold ourselves from this other person until they come around, until they're sorry. This isn't the aggressive love that Peter's describing. Now, don't misunderstand. Love doesn't pretend. Love doesn't cover sins in the sense that it pretends they never happen, that, that, that everything's okay, that, uh, that, that uh, there's no hurt involved, trying to ignore and deny. But the focus, the goal of love is not one's own ego needs, but the concern for, for, for how that sin is affecting the other person, the person that it loves. See, it, it, it's, it's a love that's honest. Honest with our own feelings and our own uh, needs, our own hurt. It doesn't deny or, or minimize. But it's also a, a love that protects it protects in the sense that it doesn't expose the sin to other people. It goes privately to that person to talk about it. And it's a love that's not put off by the sin, but comes alongside. Again, it's a love that longs to hear, that is committed to hearing more than being heard. It's a love that genuinely looks to the other person's spiritual well-being, their spiritual life. It's a, it's a love that is eager, ready to admit its own fault, its own sin contributing to the problem. There will be sins. If you love people, you'll get hurt a multitude of times. But love covers that. It, it, it protects the other person even while it addresses the sin. Well, the next thing of, of importance, the next priority that Peter lays before us is verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, there, there's a lot that could be said about the importance of this in, in the culture Peter was writing to, especially when somebody back then became a Christian. They often lost their family. They lost all their social relationships. They were rejected, thrown out. And so it was critically important that, that the church, the body, make up for this. But in our society, you know, we don't lose quite so much off, usually. Uh, when Abdullah was up here the other day, uh, again, I was reminded in Muslim countries how much they lose. They lose their family. They lose their friends. Uh, sometimes they lose their freedom. And again... Uh, you see the importance. But what's the importance in our culture? Well, I'd like to, to, to apply this to us in a couple of ways. First of all, hospitality refers to inviting someone into your home to give to them some of what God has given you, to share with them physically what God's given you. And one of the things I'd like us in our society to consider, that this really is a, a, a call to Hold on to our possessions a little more loosely on the things that God has given us. You see, in Peter's day, for someone to invite somebody else into their home and share a meal with them might mean they go without a meal. They live very close to subsistence, especially those who are in the church because many of them had lost their, their work as a result. It was to share from their need, not their surplus. To share what they didn't think they could share. And I think it's, a, it's an injunction to us to, to be willing to share with each other, to give to each other, even when it doesn't feel 
convenient, even when it doesn't feel like we can afford it. But to give. Realize it's just things. It's just money. In spite of what the, the world tells us, possessions are not the key to life and joy. So aggressively escape that illusion by positively thinking through how you can use your money, your possessions, to love the people around you, to love the body. But the other point I, I want us to consider has to do with our homes. Our homes are our castles. And all too often we pull the drawbridge up. We don't want anybody from church in our home, in our house. Man. We don't want them that close. We want our privacy and our TV. We don't want them to see what we look like when we're just kind of laying around the house. We don't want them to see what our house usually looks like. We don't want them to see how we relate to our families. More like the Simpsons than the Cleavers. We want them to see the, the me I project at church, not the real one. But people, there's not enough time to play games anymore. Let's be done with that stuff. Let's stop pretending. Stop trying to maintain the illusion. Let's get real. We can handle it. We, we understand spiritual life that doesn't make us you know, these strange, clean all the time, perfectly coffered people. That's not reality. We don't want it to be reality. Let's open our lives to each other. And the way to start is to invite somebody from church into your home. Invite them over for Sunday lunch. Invite them over for Thursday dinner. Really get to know them and let them get to know you. This is what real fellowship is all about. So open your front door. Let people in. Now Peter uh, continues this, this theme of, of sharing what God has given us with others. But he expands it beyond just the physical. Uh, sharing of the physical things God has given us. Sharing of our food, our hospitality. He expands it to include spiritual gifts. Now we don't have a lot of time this morning to talk about what about spiritual gifts. Let me uh, briefly tell you what a spiritual gift is. A spiritual gift is an ability that God gives you when you become a Christian. It's a unique way that the Holy Spirit works through you as a unique individual to have a spiritual effect on another person. It's a, it's a way the Holy Spirit works through you as a unique, as a unique individual to have a spiritual effect on another person. It isn't a talent, it isn't a skill, though we may use talents and skills. Let me give a couple of examples. I do not have the gift of evangelism. I sometimes have the privilege of leading someone to the Lord, and I love that. It's a, it's a real privilege. But I've noticed that I can say the exact same thing as somebody with the gift of evangelism. And when I say it, the person kind of shrugs and says, huh. And when somebody with the gift of evangelism says it, the person they're talking to says, what must I do to be saved? And I kind of go, oh. <laughs> Now, I want to keep learning to share my faith. I want to keep learning, growing in my skill at loving others by sharing uh, the gospel with them. But there will be some who have the gift of evangelism 
that have a profound spiritual effect when they share the gospel. Another example is, is physically serving. I love to physically serve. I love to do things for people. Uh, say, maybe mow a lawn for somebody who's ill. But when I do it, it's great. And they're grateful. But when somebody who has the gift of helps ministers in that way, the Holy Spirit uses it to some way open that person up. It has a profound spiritual effect. Maybe opening their heart, convicting them of their need to serve, or, or often causing them to worship God for meeting a need they had no idea how it was going to be met. It opens them up spiritually. It has a profound spiritual effect. Scripture tells us that we all have a gift, or, or perhaps even gifts. Unique ways that the Holy Spirit works through each of you to have a spiritual impact on others. So Peter tells us, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. So you all have at least one gift if you're a Christian. So use it someplace in the body. But you say, I don't know what my gift is. You know what? You will never find out what your gift is. You'll never know what your gift is until you start serving. We discover our spiritual gifts as we serve, as we try things out, as we discover how God uses us. We we, we discover what we really love to do to serve people. See, and that can't happen in a vacuum. God has given you His grace for your joy and to meet needs in other people. But you will never experience that joy. And those needs will go unmet until you start serving. And then as you serve, somebody will say to you, Boy, you do that well. Or that had a profound effect on me. Or your, your wife or, or your husband will start saying, God really uses you this way. See, others will affirm that gift in you. And, and we need to, to grow in affirming what we see in each other, helping each other discover our spiritual gifts. But again, it will only happen as we serve, as we minister somewhere in the body, as we, we use, we try out things. Let God use us to meet needs. So, in light of... Uh, of this, we should recognize Peter's listing for us the things that are important. This is important stuff. This is foundational stuff. Discovering your spiritual gifts is one of the most important discoveries of your life. So give it time. Give it thought. Give it attention. Peter goes on to talk a little more about spiritual gifts. See, there are roughly two categories of spiritual gifts. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. Both categories are are unique ways that, that the Holy Spirit works through individuals to have a spiritual impact. But not everybody has speaking gifts like teaching or or preaching or evangelism or encouragement, those kinds of things. On the other hand, not everybody has serving gifts like giving or administration, organization, helps, these kinds of things. You see, the Spirit uses each of them. They're all 
necessary. And we all, we each one may do speaking things in, throughout our life and ministry. We each one do serving things, regardless of what kind of gifts. The, the fact that I have one gift doesn't mean I refuse to do anything else. And I don't have a serving gift, so I'm not going to pick that up for you. <laughs> Try that around the home. That's not what he means. But there will be unique ways God works through us, where he especially uses us to have a profound spiritual effect, and discovering and using those is key. The fact is, all the gifts are necessary. We as a church need all the gifts. And more to the point, we need the gift that God has given you. We need you. Whether we realize that or not, and whether you realize that or not. That's the way God has designed it. So in light of, uh, of the shortness of time, that we don't have any time to waste, give attention, give energy, focus to discovering your spiritual gift and growing in understanding how to use it to minister within the body. It's a priority. Now I want to look at, at the last verse together because it kind of wraps things up nicely for us. Verse 11. Peter says, If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Okay, regardless of whether you have a speaking gift or a serving gift, what you are doing when you love others deeply, when you use your spiritual gift to serve, what you are doing is simply passing on to others what God is giving you. While you're speaking, He's giving you the words to speak. While you are serving, He's giving you the strength and the creativity to do that. All you're doing is passing on to others what He is giving you. So God gets all the glory. He's the doer. He's the one that's accomplished. We are simply His instruments. Now we enjoy serving others. It's a delight. We enjoy seeing others affected for God. There's nothing more gratifying than to see somebody come closer to, to God as a result of something we've done. We enjoy the love and the bond between us that, that, that is built as we minister. But again, God gets all the glory because He's doing it through us. We are merely His instruments. And rather than being inflated by that process, we just turn and say, Thank you, God. You are wonderful. We give Him all the glory. But we also come back now to the fundamental, the primary, the most important thing. That is that inner life of God in us. You see, that, that, that having God at the core of our being. If you aren't getting, how are you going to give? If you're not hearing words from God, how are you going to give them to someone else? If you're not receiving the strength from Him, where are you going to get it? You see, we hear from God because even while we're planning what we're going to say, even as we're saying it, He is in the core of our being. And we are in contact with Him. We are listening 
to Him. He is our secret life. He is the, the secret inside us that nobody else can see, that nobody else knows. Where do we get the creativity and the energy to serve? He's inside us. And He is giving us the, the, the ability. He is giving us the power, the strength that we need. Again, if you had six months to live, what would you do? If you were in that situation, what was in your heart would come out. If you got your list, take it out right now and look at it. Is prayer, spending time with God, cultivating that inner life, seeing Him established at the core of your being, is that at the top of your list? When I did it, the first time I did this, it was not at the top of my list. It's at the top of Peter's list. And as we grow sane, it moves to the top of our list. Is uh, loving others, letting that inner life overflow into loving others intensely at the top of your list? Right next to that one? Is hospitality on your list? Is discovering and using your spiritual gift to, to serve others on your list. See, these things are what's important. These are the things that will help us gain the right focus in life. Let me just end with, with two stories. One, uh, they're both true stories. One, one is what I saw in our sister Pat Mitchell, as she approached death. When I was telling Becky what I was going to talk about this morning, she says, well, that sounds like Pat. Pat Mitchell was a sister here in the body who died this last year of, of cancer. When uh, many of you know her, were ministered to by her. When she uh, was informed that she had cancer and only a short time to live, she chose uh, not to go for chemotherapy, which would just delay her going home. She chose to focus on what was important. Pat prayed. And every time I would go see her, she would regularly ask what she could be praying for you in, in this body. And Pat spent time cultivating, even then, her, her relationship with God, that inner life with God. She listened to him. She asked him what he still had for her to do. She ministered to everyone who came into her house. She asked for some people to come in, people with whom she thought there might be unresolved issues. And then she resolved those issues. She aggressively loved them. She asked forgiveness where she felt God was telling her to. She, her focus narrowed to intimacy, cultivating that communion with God and loving others. And it was remarkable. She was spiritually powerful, even as her body was wasting away. By dying that way, she made me want to live that way. <clears throat> the last story I want to share is uh, just an incident in the life of a man. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, in her book on death and dying mentions an interview she had with a man who was dying. She asked this man, what was the greatest moment of your life? Now, this guy had been a, a powerful executive in a Fortune 500 company. Eventually, he had even been on the board of directors of this company. But the thing that leapt to his mind as, as the most important moment of his life was a time he planned to go fishing 
with his grandson. He and his grandson had gotten all ready to go. They had headed out into the mountains, getting prepared for this trip. And something came up at work. There, there was a, 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 an important, critically important meeting. And he was needed at it immediately. So they sent a helicopter out to where he and his grandson were to pick him up. But he says the greatest moment of his life was when he sent that helicopter away and went fishing with his grandson. He became sane. He saw what was really important. Now where does that kind of insight come from? There's not enough time left in life to not be sane, to not see what's really important. But where does the insight come from? And where does the courage to break step with the world, with with everyone around you, and do what is important? Well, it flows out of that inner life with God, having Him at the core of your being, having Him as your secret life. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we get so consumed with so many things. And I just confess how frequently other things crowd you out of my heart, out of my attention, that I forget my connection with you for days at a time, even weeks. Lord, I pray. I thank you for this reminder, and I pray for each of us that we would firmly establish you at the core and that we would learn to just during the days to come back over and over to be aware of your presence to to be in contact with you that we would grow in our skill at living in two worlds at the same time in the conversations that we're having with others and the things we're doing in life yet connected with you in our hearts, in our spirits. Because we know, Lord, out of that flows life and our ability to love and to give what you've given us to be free from the control of our possessions and to be spiritually affecting others, which is what you've put us here for. So, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes even further and inflame that hunger to have you at the core of our being, we pray. Jesus' name. Amen.